all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. Good morning from MPB Think Radio. This is Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, the show all about finding and maintaining a healthy lifestyle. I'm Dr. Debbie Miner, Professor and Vice Chair of Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and I am extremely thrilled today to have with me two nationally known experts, Dr. Harvey McAdon. Dr. McAdon is Director of Education and Training Programs at the Fenway Institute and Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, and he teaches and is committed to how to improve access to quality care for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people in all healthcare settings. So we're going to be thrilled to have him with us calling in. And then Dr. Leandro Mina, Professor of Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and also nationally known for his efforts. So we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call with any comments, questions, or our perspectives that you have by dialing 1-877-MPB-RING or send us an email at healthy at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit from MPB Think Radio. We'll be back with you right after the news. In Northern Virginia, that if elected, he will revamp America's cyber defenses. The United States must possess and has to, the unquestioned capacity to launch crippling cyber counterattacks. And I mean crippling, crippling. This is the warfare of the future. Donald Trump's campaign stop follows, follows a week of campaign missteps. They were magnified by a New York Times report that Trump may not have paid federal income taxes for nearly two decades after his companies reported $916 million in losses in a single year. Democrat Hillary Clinton, meanwhile, returns to Ohio today. She's expected to highlight her economic agenda. A Russian court is putting five men on trial today for allegedly assassinating an opposition politician. Charles Maines is covering the trial for Moscow. Boris Nemtsov was shot dead on a bridge in view of the Kremlin in February of 2015, shocking many here. He was a former deputy prime minister turned leading opposition figure, and President Vladimir Putin vowed to catch the killers. Prosecutors say they've done just that. Five Chechens will stand trial, though Nemtsov supporters say those behind the assassination are still at large. Charles Mays reporting from Moscow. The Pentagon is confirming a U.S. airstrike on a core al-Qaeda member inside Syria. The Defense Department says it's still trying to assess whether the strike was successful. Meanwhile, Syrian state media reporting two suicide bombings in the city of Hama that left two people dead and at least a dozen others wounded. According to Sana, one of its photographers was among the injured. Hama is under government control, and in recent years it has been spared the fierce battles that Aleppo and other cities have been witnessing among Assad regime forces, anti-Assad fighters, and ISIS terrorists. The U.S. Supreme Court's new term is formally underway. It's opting to let lower court rulings stand in cases including 
pay for college athletes and death penalty cases in Virginia and Arizona. NPR's Nina Totenberg says because of the Jewish holiday, three of the justices are absent today, so arguments in pending cases will begin tomorrow. If the justices can manage it, this will be a pallid year at the court. That's because Republicans have refused for the better part of a year to vote on President Obama's nominee to the court. That's left the justices deadlocked on a variety of major issues. The solution, candidly, a generally uncontroversial docket and postponement of arguments in the most contentious cases. Some controversies, though, are unavoidable, including cases involving the death penalty, church-state issues, and racial gerrymandering. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. U.S. stocks lower with the Dow losing 76 points. It's at 18,231. You're listening to NPR News. New questions are emerging about security in the French capital after a brazen attack on reality TV star Kim Kardashian West. She says five armed robbers forced their way into the flat where she was residing, tied her up in a bathroom, and made off with more than $10 million worth of jewelry. Local authorities are now searching for the suspects. The incident has fueled more public criticism over security in the French capital where tourism fell following multiple terrorist attacks last year. The NFL has kicked off its international series in London with a game between the Jacksonville Jaguars and the Indianapolis Colts. NPR's Frank Langfitt reports after a decade of NFL games here, many British fans want more contests or even their own team. Jaguars fans, get on your feet and make some noise for head coach Gus Bradley and your Jacksonville Jaguars. The Jaguars have signed a deal to play a game in London each season until at least 2020. Like many in yesterday's sellout crowd, Robert Smallbone is enthusiastic but has complex feelings about NFL expansion. You know, if they set up a new team over here or the Jags came over permanently, I'm always going to be a Jets fan, number one. But would you would you pay for Jag season tickets? Absolutely, yeah. I love watching a game. I'd get right behind the team. Yesterday's final score, Jags 30, Colts 27. Frank Langford, NPR News, Wembley. Dow's down 75, S&P 500 off 10, NASDAQ lost 22 points. I'm Lakshmi Singh, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Eli Lilly and Company. For 140 years, Lilly has been dedicated to uniting caring with discovery to make life better for people. Information on how the people of Lilly turn inspiration into action is at lillyforbetter.com. Catch up on past episodes and hear any of the MPB programs you've missed on the MPB Public Radio app. Available on iTunes and Google Play. Listen live to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. Search MPB Public Radio. This is Mississippi Public Broadcasting. I'm Terry Gross. Listen to Fresh Air weekdays at 3 on MPB Think Radio. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to healthy at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Okay. 
Good morning from MPB Think Radio. This is Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, the show all about finding and maintaining a healthy lifestyle. So I am so very excited to have with me today a couple of different people. Of course, Kelsey Stevens, our pharmacy expert, is back with us. We're so glad Kelsey's here. And then I've got my colleague and dear friend, Dr. Leandro Mina. Dr. Mina is a professor of medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And I, I personally call him my renaissance man <laughs> because it is like... Anything he touches, it ends up being successful. He's been invited to the White House to present on different issues, uh, the open arms clinic that he helped establish here in Jackson and serves as a center for, I'll say, achieving health equity, and that's the focus of our program today, health, achieving health equity for the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. And so... I just personally thank you for all your efforts in the state and the nation. And then we're going to have, from Boston Live, we're going to have Dr. Harvey McAdden join us. Dr. McAdden is professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and he's a director of education and the training programs at the Fenway Institute. So his life has been pretty much committed. I had the pleasure of talking to him, and he led a conference and several things in Jackson last week at UMC and other parts of the other parts of the state. So he was here, actually here in Jackson last week, but we couldn't arrange for a show last week. So we're talking to him from Boston today. So his life has been committed to also improving access to quality care for LGBT people in healthcare centers around the country. So this is just a, um, I think, a very, very appropriate discussion, a very appropriate discussion because of the, any of the issues related to this. And so I think we've got Dr. McIndon on the line now. Are you there? Yeah, hi. How are you? Yay, yay, yay. So, Dr. Mina, I'll let you first introduce yourself. Just briefly tell about yourself. And, uh, of course, I know your background and all, but for our listeners... Tell about your background and how you made it to UMC. Well, hi. Good morning. Uh, Debbie, uh, thank you very much for having me here in the program. You're very uh, welcome. Talking about this uh, important subject. So I'm originally from the Dominican Republic, and mm-hmm. you can tell by the accent. I'm yes, not from Mississippi. Yes, a beautiful accent. <laughs> Even though I've lived in Jackson for now a little bit over 13 years, I um, trained in internal medicine in Chicago at Cook County Hospital. Then I moved to New Orleans and uh, where I did my fellowship in infectious diseases and a master in public health at Tulane University. And, uh, and it was there that um, I realized that uh, I wanted in my career, continue my career um, in the world of sexually transmitted infections and uh, HIV prevention. And I wanted to go to a place where they had a lot of STDs and HIV. And uh, almost by chance, I got to meet the chairman of infectious diseases at the University of Mississippi, who uh, created an opportunity for me to come to Mississippi. And uh, and I came, you know, a, a intrigued by the very high rates of STDs and HIV that Mississippi had uh, with the plan to maybe leave in about three years. And he told me, I'm going to make it impossible for you to leave. That's right. You so, cannot leave. <laughs> I, I never left. Uh, so as part of the work that I've been doing here, one of the things that, you know, that I learned very quickly is how STDs and HIV so disproportionately impact uh, gay and bisexual men. And um, and some of the research that we have been able to do uh, show the connection between a lack of access to health care and lack of access to competent, culturally competent health services and higher rates of HIV infection. So for us, as part of the bigger you know, effort of decreasing uh, these infections in our population, in the population that is most disproportionately affected, um, 
has been at the center the the need to create culturally competent care, mm -hmm. which means that care, healthcare, where people feel comfortable talking about their life and talking about their sexual practices, but at the same time, where they meet clinicians who are also clinically prepare, prepared to provide them with the services that they need. Well, so I, I'll just go and say this. Doc, you, you've been with us here and you described your background. And Dr. McAdon is a little bit older, a little bit older than you. And, you know, what's really, really impressive is he started the first primary care-based HIV program at Academic Medical Center at Beth Israel in Boston in 1984. And, of course, been deeply involved in this issue since then. And I think back to 1984, and that's pretty much when HIV became I'll say even really noticed in the United States. I think back when I was in school and we didn't learn anything about HIV at all. And then I was just starting to work and this just came out. So that is very, very early, very early. So Dr. McEnany, welcome. Welcome again to Mississippi. Thank you. <laughs> I've been there lots. I like I it know. lots. But, Andrew, but Leandra won't hire me. So I <laughs> well, maybe I can talk to you about that. <laughs> Well, no, we just welcome you, and why don't you describe for us just a little bit about your work at the Fenway Institute? Sure. So as you said, you know, for many years I worked on, as a clinician, I was a primary care physician, yes. but I uh, did do integrated sort of HIV into our primary care practice at a, at a teaching hospital up the street, which is the same model we use here at, at Fenway. Fenway is a community health center that is was founded in 1971 in Boston. Um, it was uh, originally founded by a group of students from Northeastern, but gradually coalesced from a group of free care coalesc uh, free care collectives into a uh, health center and became a federally qualified health center about 10 years ago. Um, we have a mission to serve the LGBT community. Um, but only about 50% of the patients who come to Fenway are LGBT, and the rest are people from the community who are looking for care because we really have a general mission to care for the underserved. Um, but Fenway does integrate HIV and transgender health care into the primary care practice, and we have about uh, over 2,000 patients with HIV who get their care here and about 2,400 transgender people who get their care at Fenway. And I work in what's called the Fenway Institute, where we don't do patients, but we don't see patients, but we uh, do education research and uh, policy analysis of issues affecting LGBT people, and I'm really responsible for the education program. So um, a lot of the work that I do down in Mississippi with Leandro is focused on educating and I should say educating um, healthcare organizations and healthcare providers is working with healthcare organizations and providers around how to provide uh, quality care and welcoming and inclusive care for LGBT people. Thank you so much. Well, so to reorient our listeners today, I've got Dr. Leandro Mena from University of Mississippi Medical Center, uh, Division of Infectious Disease, and affiliated with uh, our Open Arms uh, Clinic and program, and Dr. Harvey McIndon from the Fenway Institute and Harvard Medical School. So we're we're talking about uh, achieving health equity in uh, the LGBT community people, and so. 
in in which way are things related to issues in which like parents, family members, friends can support LGBT people in their family to overcome some of these barriers, barriers they can experience in the community and uh, the healthcare setting all over. So there's a lot of literature I know supporting uh, supporting this and how you can have a positive impact in in addressing some of the issues and the and the consequences. And that's that's horrible to say too, isn't it? Consequences mm-hmm. in our day and age in our society, but there are consequences. So let's let's. I've got several questions for y'all. <laughs> several. Kelsey and I actually came up with a list of questions of things that we'd like to ask you about, but we'd love to hear from any of our listeners. One eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two. Seven four six four. So let's just let's just start with terminology. Let's start with terminology, and even some of the 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 demographics. So, Doctor Man, you mentioned. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that the statistics in Mississippi. I mean, it's kind of startling, actually, when you think of uh, some of the statistics in Mississippi associated, like even with the HIV uh, population. So, explain the LGBT terminology. And some of the demographics, I'll let Dr. McEnany did a great job at this at our at our uh, Grand Rounds last week, but that terminology and what that means. So is that too broad a question? No. <laughs> but uh, are you asking Leandro or me? Um, what, what, whichever. You, you can go ahead. Leandro's pointing to you. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I can't see what direction <laughs> I know it. <laughs> so um, I think that, um, you know, there are, people use a lot of terminology with respect to de- describing uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender people, and some people might refer to this group as sexual and gender minorities. Um, but you know, the, the 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 two basic issues that we, that people have to understand are gender identity and sexual orientation, and it's important to keep in mind that these two are not the same. That uh, sexual orientation and gender identity are different. Um, that everybody has one of each. Um, how people refer to that may be different in different parts of the country. Uh, people use different terminology. So, uh, you know, gender identity, people might think of themselves as transgender or a trans man or trans woman. And increasingly, there's uh, people who identify as non-binary or genderqueer. Sexual orientation, traditionally, people think of lesbian, gay, or bisexual, but, you know, people use other terms now. So some people describe themselves as asexual. Um, And so I think that, or pansexual. And so I think we have to kind of be comfortable with those terms, particularly in clinical settings where, um, particularly like in community health centers now, where people are uh, being asked about their sexual orientation and gender identity um, in their, and to put that information in their electronic records, that people know not only what these terms mean, but what are the implications in terms of how people might identify themselves. So, for example, um, I mentioned already that sexual orientation and gender identity are different concepts, and they're not really associated with each other. They're independent of each other. Gender identity is a person's internal sense of their gender, whether they consider themselves male, female, both, or neither. Um, And all people have a gender identity. Um, Gender expression is a different term that sometimes kind of travels with gender identity, but isn't directly associated. 
And all people have a gender expression that ranges from more masculine to more feminine. And it's how one presents themselves through their behavior, mannerisms, or speech patterns um, to the world. Um, now, gender identity, uh, the, the, probably the term that most people are familiar with, are transgender, um, like the character on the TV show Transparent. That uh, is uh, the father is transgender. He's a transgender woman. Um, and he's somebody who, she's somebody whose gender identity is not congruent with the assigned sex at birth. So um, the mother in Transparent was assigned a male sex at birth, but um, always felt as if um, she was a female and ultimately uh, kind of uh, changed uh, her name to Mara and uh, uses the pronoun she, um, and uh, that is kind of a transgender person. Um, people use different terminology, so people might say transgender woman or trans woman um, or transgender man or trans man. Sometimes people actually refer to the process of uh, kind of uh, affirming the fact that, um, uh, let's say, Mara is now a female as affirmation. And sometimes there's an older term which people use as transitioning. And sometimes people use the term, uh, people who use the term transitioning may say um, male to female uh, or female to male, meaning that they were born a male and they transitioned to a female. Um, but these are, you know, these are terms that I think people are increasingly uh, seeing in characters on television, um, increasingly knowing people in their day-to-day -day lives. And as clinicians, people are increasingly seeing these people in their waiting areas and in their uh, clinical exam rooms. And what's important is that we understand what are the implications so that, for example, a transgender person may not use the name that was on their old insurance form or their old driver's license, but may have um, may use a different name. And uh, their pronouns may be uh, not the pronouns that they used when they were born or when they were a child. So, so, so I'm going to interrupt use... you, Dr. Bang. So that, that would be like Bruce Jenner, and he was he, and now it is she. Right. And so, so it would be appropriate so, to refer yeah, yeah. So to a she. Some people would even go as far as to say that Caitlyn Jenner was always Caitlyn Jenner, mm -hmm. but uh, was assigned a different name at birth. And so, um, you know, the question is, at what point is someone aware of the fact that their gender identity is different from the sex they were assigned at birth. And it does happen to people at different ages, but for some people it happens at a very young age. And I think one thing that's important to keep in mind is that, especially among younger people now, people don't all think of themselves as male or female. They might think of themselves as non-binary and use a term like transmasculine or transfeminine to suggest that they're on a spectrum um, Towards, let's say, uh, you know, someone who's assigned a female at birth may say they're transmasculine. They're on a f spectrum towards being more masculine, but not necessarily identifying as a man.
Mm-hmm. And sometimes people may use other terminology to suggest a sort of non-binary way of thinking of themselves. And so I think as clinicians, we have to get used to the fact that some people may use pronouns that we're used to, like they, like she or him. Uh, but some people may use pronouns like they to suggest that they don't want to be identified as male or female. Mm-hmm. And even though we always think of they as a plural, um, that's no longer the case. And even uh, a number of dictionaries now have have uh, declared that they can be a pronoun to refer to an individual. So an example of how this might come up in, in a clinical setting would be if you don't know somebody's pronoun and you're going out to the waiting area to, let's say, uh, refer to somebody in the waiting area as the next person to be seen, instead of looking at somebody and saying he or she is next, you might just say they're next. Or you could say um, the patient in the green shirt is, you know, is the next person to be seen, not using any pronouns whatsoever. Because people get you know, concern sometimes if you use the wrong pronouns to refer to them. Well, it could be offensive or disrespectful. It's disrespectful, and you yeah. have to give people an opportunity to tell you what their pronouns are. Okay, I'm going to interrupt you. We're going to go to one of our callers on the line. Now, Jay, you're going to have to help me with this because I don't want to cut Dr. McEnany off, but let's go to Lisa. Can you handle that? <laughs> Thank you. Good morning, Lisa. Oh, good morning, Dr. Debbie. I, I can't wait till I, I can drive out. I keep promising I'm going to drive up to Jackson and come meet you, and it's like so far away. Oh, I'd love to meet you. You know I love Bay St. Louis, too. And, and you didn't call me. <laughs> I hadn't <laughs> been there lately. <laughs> uh, well, next time, you, you can you have the number? I'll, I'll, call, I'll call back or just come over to the, is it the university Medical Center. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Okay, Doctor Murray. I, I had, you know, I mean, I, I'm an old school person. Okay, and back back in the day, you know, when I was going to, to college, you know, and I was <clears throat> I was dating women and everything in California, and then I went to Paris, and everybody's so open minded, and I never thought about if I was gay or I was, you know, I, I felt like people it made them more comfortable to put a label so i wrote this dissertation never got it published about how people it feels more comfortable for society sometimes to put a label on you because nobody the way i look the way i act i'm very feminine so that's interesting that the doctor said the education i mean that's that's interesting to me about you know the uh the gender identity and and the the, the gender expression, you know, and then then people just assume, <clears throat> I like maybe he could address that part, how people would assume that, you know, one thing or the other. Mississippi's different. You know, I'm from New Orleans, and, you know, and, and, and been around and, and New York and stuff, and, it, and you don't feel as different. But Mississippi is, is, uh, is, is quite, quite different than other states, I think. Well, I think those are great points, and so I'll let Dr. Mina and Dr. McEnany address that, because that's, yeah, Mississippi's different. I mean, we, we pride ourselves on some of our differences, and some of our differences we probably should change, but we're, you know, we're all glad we're in Mississippi, so I'll let, I'll let them address that. That's, that's a very good observation that Lisa made. Right, I, that, that's very true, you know, and <clears throat> as we try to uh, go around, as uh, Dr. Michael and Harvey said, uh, educating healthcare providers, really at the center of that education is a uh, 
some key components. One of them is, you know, treating everyone with respect. But the other one that is very important is actually not making assumptions. So it doesn't matter how people look, how people talk. The right thing is actually ask people, you know, what they are, who they are, you know, who they're with, uh, what they prefer, you know, and, and with that really uh, makes, you know, making a more effective relationship with patients, you know, from the perspective of a doctor-physician relationship. And, uh, and probably, you know, more effective in terms of uh, providing that patient with uh, the treatment that they need, you know, for any given circumstances they may have. That's a great point. And I, and I, I, will, I, I will reflect, Dr. McIndon actually asked in our conference last week, and this was among healthcare providers, he asked how many of these people in the audience, huge room full of people, how many of them had actually been asked by their healthcare provider what their sexual orientation was, and maybe two hands went up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's a reflection. Well, I think two is an exaggeration. Oh, two may be an exaggeration. I think, yeah, probably just a hand or two went up automatically. But yeah, two is an exaggeration for that huge room full of people. So let's no, go. I mean, I, th- I think that you're making, you know, an important point. But yeah. I do think that, um, you know, Lisa, that that you know, people can't. You can't make assumptions about people, no matter what they look like. You cannot. And you know, it was actually in Mississippi that I've learned a lot about this. Like we went to do a project for the Mississippi Health Department, and listening to people who work for the health department, um, who were like receptionists in the waiting area, um, the people who first greeted patients when they came in. You know, they would talk about people who literally uh, presented themselves as both male and female on different days. And that the way they looked and the way they presented themselves, you know, changes. And I think that it's kind of hard to, unless you've known somebody where that's the case or seen patients that that, where that's the case, it's kind of hard to kind of get your uh, head around the fact that people who people's gender identity may uh, people may feel their gender identity is different from one day to the next, but in fact, you know, there are people like that. That's by far not the majority of people whose gender identity is different from their assigned sex at birth, but it's true for some. So understanding, you know, flexibility and the fact that people may, uh, you know, vary their, you know, name, uh, change their name. Uh, use pronouns that are different from the ones they used um, when they were born are, you know, are, are, are important things for us to, to learn about if we're going to provide good care for people because we want to make sure that everybody gets uh, talked with respectfully and uh, appropriately. And that's kind of one of the goals of uh, good patient care because everybody really wants to be treated respectfully. And I think it's, you know, we live in a world where a lot of these uh, issues have never been, uh, people haven't learned about a lot of these things because they were felt to be, uh, you know, only a a small number of, you know, kind of people who uh, kind of were someplace else. But now we're learning more and more. And and I, I actually have to say, you know, after giving talks in Mississippi and Arkansas and Alabama and Louisiana, it's it's quite interesting to find how many physicians uh, or nurses will come up, you know, after a talk and say, you know, I have 
you know, blank number of transgender people in my practice. And I'm glad you came here today because we don't learn much about this in medical school or nursing school or social work school. And we need to learn more about this if we're going to do a good job. So true. Well, let's go. We've got several callers on the line. So, Jay, I'm scared to punch buttons in here somewhere. <laughs> I'm scared I'll cut Dr. Macken at all. So let's go to Marie. Good morning, Marie. Good morning. Thank you for holding. Um, my question has to do with the term genderqueer. Mm-hmm. It was one that I heard maybe over 10 years ago on a trip to San Francisco, and it's now being used more often here in Mississippi. So I was wanting a little further clarification and understanding of what is genderqueer in the context of how it's being used now. That is a wonderful question because, you know, I had that on my agenda because that came up at my my house recently, <laughs> and my husband and my aunt said something because I said something about this person and queer, and they were like, Debbie, how can you be so disrespectful and demeaning to that person? That is not an appropriate thing to say. I'm like, well, my my friends say that's okay. Yeah, <laughs> so so it's queer, something, but in my age group, I mean, that was different. a very, very terrible, you know, terrible yeah. way to reflect and to say something. So I'll, I'll let Drs. Mana and McAdam address that, because I think it's different now. Yeah. Well, so this is, uh, I mean, I'll speak about that, because we do get asked about that quite a bit, and, and I'm actually older than than Dr. Miner. So, I don't think so. I think so, we're about the same so age. <laughs> I grew up, you know, we never liked, we always thought the term queer was something that, you know, we weren't supposed to say and you weren't, certainly weren't supposed to call someone that. That's right. Um, but, you know, increasingly, uh, both queer and genderqueer are terms that many people use with pride. And so if a patient, let's say, and, and in many universities, for example, uh, you know, studying uh, people whose gender or sexual orientation is different than heterosexual or uh, traditional genders. Um, you know, those those programs are often called queer studies programs, and so increasingly, younger people are getting used to the fact that queer is a term that means I don't want to identify with the traditional gay, lesbian, bisexual uh, terminology or, you know, for, which we didn't really get much chance to talk about. And genderqueer is a term that in a similar way is used to describe people who are, who don't, don't define themselves as male or female, but think of themselves in a non-binary way, neither male nor female, and use the term genderqueer for their non-binary status. There's other terms that people use for non-binary identity. Sometimes people say, I'm gender expansive, um, um, gender special. But, you know, genderqueer is the term, is kind of like the prototypical term for people who identify as non-binary. And um, again, you know, it's, it's a little bit hard to get used to for some people, but I think that our goal as clinicians is to make sure that our patients feel comfortable. So if a patient says to you or me, um, I, I think I'm genderqueer when I ask about their gender identity, um, it's important that I reflect that back to them and say, well, how long have you felt that you're genderqueer? And, you know, tell me about that. Um, and uh, it may be they felt that way since they were two, and it may be that they just started feeling that way when they were 30. And so 
you know, you really want to learn about a patient. You want to learn about uh, how they think about themselves, what, you know, that's hap- what's, ha- what's happened to them since they started thinking about themselves that way. And, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's important that we learn those things. I hope that resolves some of that, Marie. Thank you so much for asking that question. Let's go. Let's go next to Natasha in Jackson. Good morning, Natasha. Hi. How are you? Fine. Great. So I have a question. Um, I'm thinking it may be more so for Dr. Mina as it relates to Mississippi. So well, he's quite the expert. Yes. So I work in the healthcare field. And I've recently been hearing um, within the past year some buzz about PrEP. And I mentioned it to a friend of mine who's gay that he should, you know, talk to his doctor about it. Well, he went in and he talked to his provider, and the doctor didn't feel comfortable prescribing PrEP to him. So about six months later, he went in for another checkup, and he tested positive for HIV. So my question is, how is it that we get more doctors on board with prescribing PrEP? And also, um, is there a way for um, consumers, is there like a list or places for them to um, have access to getting PrEP? What a wonderful question. If I, did, if I didn't know better, I would say that was planted because Dr. Mina is our state expert on that, and he is very passionate about that. And he can He's tell you. He's a national expert. Yeah, national. Well, you know, I'm trying to stick here in Mississippi. But, yes, he is a national expert about that. He's actually been, like I said, early in the program, being invited to the White House to present on this a couple of times. Well, uh, thank you, Debbie. Uh, <laughs> 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 so that's a great question. You know, LGBT people, certainly gay and bisexual men, you know, suffer from many health disparities. I mean, they are affected uh, when compared to the general population of many health issues. I mean, substance abuse, you know, even smoking. Uh, but certainly, you know, sexually transmitted infections and HIV are two infections, especially HIV, that disproportionately affect men, gay and bisexual men, who represent only probably about 2% of the population of the country, but represent over 60%, almost 70% of all the HIV infections in the country. Mm, that's and, amazing. Uh, mm. Since 2012, the FDA approved a drug called Truvada that can be given to people who are HIV, not HIV infected, HIV uninfected, and that if taken every day, uh, they can prevent getting infected with HIV. Uh, what the caller, you know, the story that the caller just mentioned is a very sad story. Because many clinicians, uh, there was a survey done last year where about one in three healthcare providers were unaware of pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is what PrEP stands for. And uh, and still, many patients who may feel themselves at risk of HIV infection, who know about PrEP and reach out to the healthcare providers, are being denied access to this medication that has great potential to really reduce the the risk of becoming HIV infected and really has put our hands with one with the other strategy, which is, I mean, treating HIV among those who are infected to really end the, the HIV epidemic. Well, so, so she asked about how would someone find out about that or what would be, where would be an access, so a healthcare access in our state? Right. So, and, I, and I know, and I know, you know, it's far even outreaching from our state too. So our our right. listeners from surrounding states too. This so applies that, to that's them. a fantastic question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and thank you for reminding me. So here in Jackson, for example, we have a clinic called Open Arms Healthcare, where people can have access to pre-exposure prophylaxis regardless whether they have insurance or not. 
at the University of Mississippi, there are several providers. If you call um, Family Medicine Clinic um, on Lakeland, I know the health, there are healthcare providers there that provide pre-exposure prophylaxis. Uh, we do that at the pavilion uh, as well. But anyone can find out their closer, their closest, you know, uh, prep provider by Googling a greater than AIDS have a prep locator. If you put in Google prep locator, it will take you directly to prep locator. Prep locator, yeah. It mm-hmm. will take you directly to the greater than mm-hmm. AIDS um, mm-hmm. website where you only have to enter your zip code and it will show you mm. not only where you can get a prep provider, but also those providers are in that list having selected because they all provide prep in the context of a culturally competent, you know, mm-hmm. environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, Open Arms re- is the model for that, and this has been replicated. I know you've got relationships even starting other things across the state and in other areas of the country, too. So this same p- type of model. And so this putting in your zip code and under that locator, that will lead someone to direct information. Correct. Okay, great, great. Okay, thank you so much. Appreciate that call. So, Jay? Next caller, is it Gloria? Great. Good morning, Gloria. Thank you so much for holding. Thank you for taking my call. I would like to know, is are there any DNA studies that uh, will show prior to birth or after birth what people are? I have many, several, several um, gay or lesbian, uh, transsexual people on both sides of my family. And I'm really wondering if it isn't something that people simply are born that way and they have no choice in it, which is the opposite of what most people here in Mississippi feels or thinks, especially those who uh, claim to be very religious. Oh, that is a great question. So I will let our, our experts address that. Harry, do you want to start? Or? Sure. So, so, I mean, I think that generally speaking that, you know, there's lots of theories about why people are, uh, you know, gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender. But in reality, um, I think that most clinicians feel that it is just something that people are born with and that, you know, we actually – uh, do see particularly, uh, you know, with respect to uh, gender identity, that kids at a very young age, I mean, I've known some at the age of two who, when they're, you know, kind of at the point of, be, you know, beginning to be toilet trained, will say, you know, I won't, um, I won't be toilet trained if, unless I can wear uh, boys' underpants or girls' underpants or people want to dress in a different way. And, you know, for lots of kids, this kind of can be a transient phase, but for lots of kids, it goes on for the rest of their life. And I think that people are born whose gender identity is not the same as the sex that they were assigned at birth and feel like they were born um, in the wrong body. And when when someone feels like that, it, it affects their whole life, and it's necessary to try and help them in different ways. Not every uh, transgender person wants to have surgery or take hormones, but, you know, they may want to change their name. They may want to dress differently. And we have to affirm them and be socially affirming um, so that they feel good about themselves and 
Um, getting back to the question that was asked at the very beginning of this call about the role that families can play is the most important thing that families can do is embrace people and make sure that uh, people feel like regardless of you know how they think about themselves or how they identify themselves that um, they're still loved by their family because that can make all the difference in the world between that person feeling like um, they can go out and do what they want to do or um, on the other hand when people are rejected by their families they often leave home feel rejected often you know, attempt or commit suicide, and a lot of, you know, young transgender people have done that. Um, so I think families can make a huge difference in embracing people. And even if they have a bit of discomfort in terms of what it means or why it's happening, I think it's to overlook that that's important and to uh, really embrace your child or embrace your cousin or embrace your aunt for the person that they feel they are and it makes all the difference um, to them and will make all the difference to you to make sure that you actually have, you know, a close family. Well, we've got to take a quick break. Jake keeps giving me the hand signal. So we are here today with Dr. Leandro Mina and Dr. Harvey McAton. Uh, Leandro is from University of Mississippi Medical Center and Dr. McAton from the Fenway Institute and Harvard Medical School. We'll be back with you, please, our callers and our, our callers on the line. Just keep holding just a bit, and we'll be back with you right after this quick break. Support for MPB comes from the Bologna Performing Arts Studio at Delta State University, presenting the Los Angeles Guitar Quartet Thursday, October 6th. The four musicians will feature music from bluegrass to Bach. Details and ticket information at BolognaPAC.com. One of these men will be a heartbeat away from the Oval Office. People in both parties are restless for change. America looks in the mirror, and what is it that we see there? Mike Pence, Tim Kaine. Where do the vice presidential nominees stand on the issues? Find out tomorrow when they go head-to-head in their one and only debate. I'm Robert Siegel. Join me for live coverage and real-time fact-checking from NPR News. Tomorrow night at 8 on MPB Think Radio. To listen to stories and shows, go to mpbonline.org. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to healthy at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. 
Good morning from MPB Think Radio. This is Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm Debbie Miner. I'm here today with Kelsey Stevens and Dr. Leandro Mina in 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 our in our room here at the station. And we've got on the line Dr. Harvey McAdam from the Fenway Institute and Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. So Healthy and Fit show, and we're talking about achieving health equity for our LGBT and queer community. So I've got like personally 10 questions here that we that Kelsey and I prepared ahead of time that we've gotten to none of them yet so we're going to continue with some of our callers on the line and try to address some of these things uh such an interesting interesting topic so let's go now to James in Gulfport thank you so much for holding uh is that me James that's you James you okay, are on well, the line from my birthplace we, Gulfport Mississippi that cut out that part Anyhow, yeah thank you so much for taking me uh until just recently, I would not be too much involved in this, but I've just discovered that a very close family member is uh, HIV positive. And I want to know uh, where uh, this medicine, this woman talked about a medicine that was a good preventative that was not accessible very easily. Will that do anything for someone who already is HIV positive and or are there other things that I need to know about? Yeah, yeah, James, um, that's a very good question. You know, uh, for people who are HIV infected, there are actually uh, many medications that can be used in treatment. As a matter of fact, um, treatment of HIV has evolved over time, and nowadays treatment is so simple as taking one pill once a day. Medications are very effective, and they're very easy and tolerable. As a matter of fact, um, some of the biggest advances in, in HIV treatment in the last few years have put now that the life expectancy, which is the time that people who are HIV infected are expected to live with HIV, is almost the same one as someone who is not HIV infected. We're talking about 50, mm. 55 years. Mm, that's great. And so uh, that's very, very different because we, when I mentioned that uh, the program that Dr. McKinnon started in the 80s, and I remember that so clearly because that's right at the time where I finished pharmacy school we didn't learn about anything about HIV, and then I had a good friend that was HIV positive, and I watched him die. I watched him die, and it was awful, awful. So, and now to say that, that's, oh, how remarkable. Right. So, so nowadays, really, you know, it, it, there should be close to non-HIV-related mm. deaths. The key issue is making sure that people who are HIV-infected are seen by a doctor and they're taking medication. There's something else that people don't know, which I think is as important as knowing how treatment can really prevent, you know, disease caused by HIV. But it's that treatment, you know, when people take HIV medications and the virus becomes undetectable in the blood for at least six months, that person can no longer pass HIV to other people. So treatment of HIV... That's a great point for James in relation to his question. Right. Mm -hmm. So treatment of HIV not only um, prevents, you know, people from becoming ill eh, or developing disease because of HIV or developing AIDS... Treatment also prevents transmission of HIV. Mm, yeah, so important. Well, this is the situation. It's my child, and I need to know stuff because he does not share a lot. And I need to know, I need to be on top of this. Where can I go and sit down with someone and get on top of this information so I will be able to be proactive? Uh, of course, I support 
but I want to be proactive in knowing what's going on with what the possibilities are for treatment, et cetera. Well, you care right. about your child, and that's so important. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think, you, you know, your child is very lucky. You know, to have a parent, you know, supporting and caring so much is so important. So, you know, I usually share with my, you know, patients and with their family a website, uh, say www.aids.gov. That's a website where you're going to find information and so about that GOV. That means it's a government government. Yes. Website. Yeah. Okay. The information because in the Internet, there's a lot of different websites mm-hmm. with uh, uh, unreliable information. AIDS.gov is going to give okay. you very reliable information so you can understand what HIV is, what's the process, what medications people take, you know, how often they need to be seen. Nowadays, as I say, uh, people who are HIV infected who take medication, typically see the doctor every three months to make sure medications are working. But for most right. of my patients, after I've seen them for maybe two years and they are well controlled and they're taking medication, and all that process becomes so much easier when you have the support of your family. Sometimes, yeah. you know, the reason why your child may not feel comfortable, may not talk to you about this, because maybe they don't know, you know, how involved and how willing to support them you are. Uh, so, so, you know, letting them know, you know, even if you go to the websites, you're actually going to find a tab that says how to talk to your family about HIV, how to talk to your parents, how to talk to your um, sexual partners about HIV. Oh. Right. Well, I really appreciate this, and I'll do it. Is, is there anything on PubMed.gov? Uh, there's a lot on PubMed.gov, <laughs> but it's, it's so much, and you have yes. to be very specific, you know. Yeah, uh, okay. All right. So I think, you know, there's another thing. Uh, there's a magazine called Pose. POZ. Uh-huh. That is very good because uh, it provides a lot of information, but it's written for patients. It's written for, as um, supposed to be for a healthcare professional. It's written for um, for for the population in general, for consumers, for patients and their families. And it talks about all the advances you know that are right. out there about HIV treatment. And it tells a lot of personal stories about how people can overcome you know some of the challenges of being HIV infected because you have to deal with a lot of uh, stigma, sometimes oh, yeah. rejection of people mm. who don't understand uh, HIV. So, so again, it, it's always the best. Uh, uh, and, I, and I can say how lucky, you know, I think, you know, your song is uh, to have the support, uh, your support. As many of our patients, for example, are so afraid to talk to their family. And, yeah. uh, and it's difficult to do this by yourself. I mean, we know that with the support of a family, people do so much better. Well, he and I have tackled a few problems together, and one, so we'll, we'll get this one. And I appreciate your help so much. My pleasure. Have a great day. Thank you, James. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mina, I know you shared with me earlier, and I really appreciated it, Some one of the examples that you had about just um, stigma associated with interacting with the LGBT community and some of the different health disparities. So would you mind telling us a little bit about that? Mm, just how so we important. can overcome and Dr. McIntyre brought up a lot of that in his presentation too, these different mm-hmm. types of stigmas and how it can make a difference in care. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're getting ready because there's so many health issues now that we have gender specific treatments. And if something hadn't been disclosed, Lord have mercy, you know, you can make a medical mistake, honestly, if something hadn't been disclosed. But some of these stigmas, it's just mm, so astronomical. So I'll let both of y'all address that. That's a wonderful yeah. question, Kelsey. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I was mentioning... Um, Early on, in 2006, 2007, we have uh, an increase in the cases of HIV uh, among young men who are with men. And in some of our earlier studies, we find out that people who did not have a primary care provider 
were about four times more likely to be infected with HIV. But those who had a primary care provider and didn't disclose to their provider sexual behavior were actually eight times more likely to be HIV infected. So again, it's not only, so it's important, you know, that to make sure that as healthcare providers, as clinicians, as we take care of patients, one, we don't make any assumptions and we do routine sexual histories. Uh, from the perspective of the patient, you know, sometimes your doctor may not necessarily ask the question. Uh, so it's important, you know, for you to let your clinician know, your doctor know, you know, about your sexual behavior. And, and, and when you do that, that person, that should prompt a certain actions from the, from the, from your doctor's standpoint that should be able to, they should talk to you about HIV, that to talk, they should talk to you about STD prevention, you know, they should talk to you about PrEP, a pre-exposure prophylaxis. And if you happen to be HIV infected, the most important thing is to make sure that you get connected uh, to care as soon as possible. <clears throat> I know Harvey, you know, can talk about some of the issues around individual stigma, structural stigma that exists yeah. uh, that make things, yeah. you know, quite difficult. Uh, well, in, this, in the culture that we have, we've gone from this culture of don't ask, don't tell, to maybe we should ask, should tell. So, Dr. McAdoo, if you, if you want to comment well, about that, because it's no, just... I mean I, think uh, that, I mean, I think that Leandro's pretty much explained it, but, um, uh, you know, stigma is uh, both very simple in terms of, uh, you know, it kind of is rejecting people in different ways, and I think there's both interpersonal stigma and then there's uh, structural stigma. So interpersonal is like things like bullying a kid at school. Or, but unfortunately, sometimes healthcare providers often do that by not wanting to care for people who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender, and or not being respectful of them or treating them like, for example, refusing to use the the pronoun that the that the patient um, uses for their everyday life, and using a pronoun that is something that you know they've uh, were born with, but no longer identify with. And that can be very uh, demeaning to people. And so people end up either feeling bad, um, getting depressed, um, getting behavioral health issues or mental health issues that result as a result of that, come as a result of that, or they may never come back for care again. And as a result, they may not get the kind of basic health care that you and I would all want our family members to have, like even routine things like getting your blood pressure checked or getting a pap smear or getting, uh, you know, any kind of examination that should be done routinely, people may miss those and as a result develop health problems. Um, so I think that in subtle and not so subtle ways, healthcare providers can make a big difference by affirming people um, in their gender identity or in their sexual orientation. And uh, just as I said before, you know, family members have to embrace their family members. I think clinicians have to be affirming and respectful if people are going to get the kind of care they need and avoid the stigma that may lead to uh, health inequities. Mm, such wonderful points. And uh, I can already tell we're going to have a follow-up to this show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because we haven't gotten to hardly anything on our agenda yeah. at all. Uh, so, if, oh, goodness, and there starts our music already, my goodness. Uh, Jay, is it over? Is it time almost? 
We got about one minute left. Okay, okay. So today we've been d- discussing health equity in the LGBT community with Dr. Leandro Mena and Dr. Harvey McIntyre from uh, the Fenway Institute and Harvard Medical School. So this has just been a fascinating topic, and we will have to do this again because and get to actually get to our agenda for some of the things we brought up. But I thank you both so much for joining us, and I hope you have a good day in Boston, Dr. McIntyre. I know you're on the way to a lecture, so good good evening and have a good rest of the day. Southern Remedy okay. Healthy and Fit is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. We're funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and by the generous support from the members of the Foundation for Public Broadcasting in Mississippi. Today's show was engineered by Jay White. Please join us next Monday at 11 for Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. And stay tuned. NPR's Here and Now is next on MPB Think Radio. This forecast is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Live healthy on the go with the My Blue mobile app. More at B.